Alright, today's scripture reading is from Leviticus 8, verses 1 through 9 and 2 through 30. You can find that in the blue Bibles on the floor under a chair on page 86. So could you please stand with me as you're able as we give our attention to God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meetings. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied a sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. Oh. And he placed the breast piece on him, and in the breast piece he put the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set a golden plate, and the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put, them, put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ear, on the right thumb of their right hand, and the big toe of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the side of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that on, on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and the other loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of the fat and on the right thigh. He put all of these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his son, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar, and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his garments with him. This is God's word given for us for our good. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection OC. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here. And uh, it's great to have you with us. We're continuing this weird series in the book of Leviticus this morning. And thanks for uh, thanks to Alita for reading that passage. I feel like every Sunday, it's just the weirdness factor that kind of gets ratcheted up just a little bit more, right? We've got a couple more weeks to go. Uh, before we dive in and look at this passage together this morning, let me ask you to pray with me. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Oh God, would you open our ears and our minds and our hearts 
and our wills and our hands this morning that we would receive what you have for us in your word. As we um, have just listened to um, your ancient word read and uh, details of rituals that seem um, strange and foreign and if we're honest, probably fairly irrelevant to our lives. God, would you speak to us through them? Would you help us to see um, how your word in Leviticus helps us live as your followers in the world today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're talking about priests priests, and I don't know what your background is, I don't know what your experience is, I don't know um, what sort of uh, church or religious context you may have grown up in, Um, you know, talking about priests might be familiar to you, it might be unfamiliar to you, I think it's probably safe to say that um, when when we hear the word priest, we might be thinking of any number of things, but none of them is probably very good. Um, It's just kind of, there's just a weird factor, right? Um, I read this article, there was an article in Esquire magazine recently, talking about this man who bought a priest's cost outfit, Uh, I don't know what the, the, I don't mean to be disrespectful, I don't know what the proper terminology is, but um, not not just like the collar that you'll see a a priest wear, but like the full cassock, which is almost like a, a dress. Um, in a way that a, a priest would wear. He wasn't a priest, but he bought one and he wore it around for a day. And he just walked around uh, the city of Chicago going about his, uh, his normal day uh, because he was curious about how people would treat him just because he was dressed like a priest. And he said he was utterly shocked by the, by the way people treated him. Uh, not in a bad way, but he said people stared at him constantly. You know, the, the, we all have this kind of unmentioned like length of time. It's appropriate if you look at somebody, a stranger, and you make eye contact and you look away. Not so with priests. You know, people feel like they can just keep staring at, at a priest. Um, he said people would want, people wanted to touch him. Uh, people t- he said 12 times somebody just reached out, a stranger just reached out and touched me you know, on the shoulder or on the wrist. Um, he said many people wanted something from him, um, homeless people, but not just homeless people. You would see two men walking down the street, and, um, and all of a sudden they'd, kind of, they'd see him and kind of stand up straighter and say, good morning, Father, or, or something like that. Um, he said dressing like a priest was a physically demanding job. He was constantly bending down to talk to children, hugging people. He, he was pulled into a, a city of Chicago tour at one point where the tour guide pointed out the priest and everybody on the bus waved and he had to wave back. So people wanted to take selfies with him. He said, I was physically exhausted after a day as a priest. And he concluded by saying this. He said, it's easy to put on a priest's clothes, but it's really hard work to wear them all day. Priests, um, (laughs) I think there's two things that are just helpful to acknowledge when we think about priests. Um, and the first is, there's just kind of like a weirdness factor, right? And I, again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but like what, what are these people really doing? What, what, um, what is their function? Who are they? What do they really do? 
And then the second thing about priests and closely related to it is that there's this question of hierarchy. Um, and in our world, we probably would say something like, do these people really think they're better than us? I mean, they dress like, you know, they got this special way they dress. Like, what's going on with these guys, right? Okay, weirdness and hierarchy. And what I want you to see is that if you take away the negative aspects of both of those words, that's actually exactly what the Bible is communicating to us about the nature of priests. Um, another way to say weird is distinct, right? Priests are people who are distinct, who are set apart for a particular purpose. And there is this sense, because they're distinct and they're set apart to God for a particular purpose, they're meant to call all of us to our better selves, our higher, a higher purpose. Um, there's a sense in which they, they are to be better than us, not because they are morally better than like lay people, but rather they're meant to call us into a way of living, a higher way of living. Um, you know, maybe like the, uh, like the personal secretary of a government official. Um, you know, because of who uh, a, a, personal a personal assistant works for, he's held to a higher standard, right? So this is weird. Leviticus is weird. Priests, for most of us, are, are unfamiliar. Um, why, why even bother? Why, like, why spend the morning talking about Leviticus? What I want you to see, my hope for you by the time we leave, is that you're going to see that what the Bible says about priests is stunning. And it's beautiful. Um, it's stunning and it's beautiful because what we see in the priesthood is that God has called his people to be distinct, to be different, to be holy. Um, what the Bible talks about priests, it's not talking about like arbitrarily obeying these laws that God just came up with, and if we do them, it'll make him happy. Um, the priesthood is about living with personal integrity uh, by carrying out social and um, economic justice in the world. But it's about having compassion for everyone. It was about living in relationship with God so that the whole world would know what it like, looks like to live in relation to God. So this morning as we dive into Leviticus chapter 8, there's, there's really three questions that I want to ask. And uh, the first question is this, just what the heck is going on here? Um, what do these weird rituals, what do they even mean? Um, so that's a, what is going on? What does it mean? But then the second thing I want to ask is, who are our priests today? And then thirdly, I want to leave you with a question about your next steps. What, what might your next step be in light of the priesthood in Leviticus chapter 8? So first, what does Leviticus teach us? What is it saying? What does it teach us about the role of the priesthood? Um, Leviticus, we have seen over these last several weeks, it marks out for us the sacred presence of God in our lives. Leviticus is helping us see that it's not just a Sunday morning worship service uh, that is a sacred time where we encounter God, but all of our lives are meant to be lived in the presence of God. There's a sense in which everything is sacred. And so we've seen these, um, these kind of sacred acts, these rituals, these sacrifices that help us to say, I'm sorry to God and thank you to God. And then we saw last week um, that there is sacred time, that God helps us to acknowledge all of our time is sacred to him by occasionally pausing from our work and resting, that time is sacred. But this morning, 
Um, we're also going to see that there are people that are sacred. And Leviticus is asking us, is, is inviting us to ask, what if everything is sacred? Um, what would it look like for us to live as sacred people? The priesthood is about this. Um, God, has, God has called out his people. God called Israel and said, I want my people to be distinct. You are going to be different from every other nation on the planet. And because Israel, my people, are different, they're going to demonstrate to everybody else what it looks like to live in the presence of God. Does that make sense? Israel is different, not because they're better, but because they are distinct to show everybody else what it looks like to live in light of a relationship with God. But Israel was only consistent in their failure. Um, they continually failed to be distinct and holy as God had called them to be. And so God calls out these people in Israel and calls them priests. And the priests are to, to, uh, to mark out for the Israelites what it looks like to be dis distinct and different and holy to God. The priests and the rituals through which the priests are initiated give us an elaborate picture of the way that God causes people to function in the world. So a couple things that we see in this passage a leader read. And the first thing we see is that the priests had to be washed. Uh, the priests came and were brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting, this place that God would meet with his people. And they were ceremonially washed. Now why is that? Well, they were washed because what it's saying is priests, priests are just people. They're just men. They are broken. They are sinful people. In a sense, they're just like everybody else. And so if they're going to enter into the presence of God, they're going to have to be cleansed. They're going to have to be cleaned. And so they were, they were ordained as priests through this rite, this, this ritual of washing, um, this ceremonial washing. So they're washed, but then we see in verses like 6 through 9, it talks about the clothing that the priests wore. And, uh, and there's a coat, and there's a robe, and there's a skillfully woven uh, a band, right? And, um, and there's a turban that's placed on the priest's head, and there's an ephod. An ephod is like a, uh, um, it's like a really large necklace. Uh, it, was a, it was a golden necklace that was just studded with precious stones. Um, and, and a turban is placed on his head, and there's a breastplate made of gold, and there's, a, uh, there's this, this piece of gold on the turban. And it's totally lost on us because we just get, what is this saying? But what it's saying is that this, this, this priest was just clothed in fabulously, spectacularly expensive clothing. Uh, his, his clothing was incredibly ornate and detailed. And um, every, every uh, scholar I read on this point made the point that there's a sense in which the priest is like a miniature version of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle or the temple is where God would come to, where God's presence was made known on earth. It was the place where, where God's people in the Old Testament would go to meet with God and to come into the presence of God. And the priest is like this condensed walking version of, of the temple. Uh, he's meant to signify, he's, he's clothed in the majesty of heaven. So if you take those two things, the clothing of heaven, but the washing of the priest because he's just a man, what you see is that the priest is the go-between. The priest is the one who lives with one foot on the earth and one foot in heaven. He is our link to God. Um, what that means for us is this. Um, 
a, a, a priest is like a lawyer. Um, I don't know if that has positive or negative connotations for you. I know there's lawyers in the room, right? Um, we, several years ago, had a situation where we, we, Ashley and I went to small claims court. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but we had no idea what we were doing. And we were just terrified. We don't know what we're doing. I've never been to a courtroom before. And uh, we think we have this just cause on our side, but I don't know how this works. And, and we're nervous and we're anxious and we don't know what to expect. But we had a lawyer. We had an advocate. We had somebody who was there to represent us to the court and help us understand what was going on in the court and represent the court to us. It was okay because we had a mediator. And that is the function of a priest. And we know this instinctively. We all regularly encounter situations in our lives where we feel unprepared or unequipped or inadequate to the task before us. And we need a guide. We need someone to tell us that everything is going to be okay. And when it comes to just our day-to-day lives, that's true. But when it comes to uh, questions of who am I, and am I, a, am I a good person, we all crave, we long for a voice from outside of ourselves to tell us, everything's okay. You're okay. And the priest is that voice. The priest is the man with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. He is our link between God. He is our mediator. He is the voice who can communicate God's presence to us. The next thing we see in these rituals is that the priest was consecrated or he was set apart through this really strange ritual. They killed a ram and they took the blood of the ram and then they they put it on his right earlobe and his right thumb and his big toe even. Right? What in the world <laughs> is going on here? Well, it's a picture of total dedication. The priests are set apart. His ear, so that he can listen to God uh, and he can listen to people. And his, his thumb, uh, representing his hands, uh, saying that all he does is dedicated to God is devoted to God. And then his toes, or his, uh, represent his feet, so that everywhere he goes, he goes as a priest. It's saying that uh, this is not just like a nine-to-five job. Um, he's, not a, he's not a priest uh, by employment. He's a priest by vocation, by calling. Everything he does, everywhere he goes, he goes as a priest. Uh, he is totally and wholly set apart to God. He is a... You know, another way to think about the the blood is smeared on the top of his body, the middle of his body, and the bottom. You know, head to toe, everything he is and everything he does, he is a priest. And then the final thing that we see is a meal. We didn't. um, I don't think we actually read. uh, Maybe we did read all of this. Um, But it talks about they go into the the, the temple and there's this great uh, wave offering. And we looked at this. not last week, the week before, but this wave offering is meant to be like a symbolic meal. Um, and we, we didn't read, and when it goes into the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, it talks about this meal that the priests would then sit down and they would eat um, in the temple, in the, in the courts of the tabernacle. And what it's picturing is uh, the priests having been, having been washed and having been clothed in the majesty of heaven, and then having been dedicated and set apart to their service to God, then enter into God's presence, and they sit down and they eat a meal with God. 
Um, you know, imagine if you, if you get an invitation to meet with somebody important. Let's say you get a, uh, an invitation to meet with the president or uh, like the governor or the mayor, or maybe it's like uh, your boss's boss's boss. You get, an, you get an invitation to meet with the CEO of your company, somebody really important. Now the way that that invitation is communicated to you is going to make a big difference in how you feel about that, that meeting. If you get an email on Saturday that says, I wanna see you in my office first thing in the morning on Monday morning, what is that saying? That's not good news, right? It says, you have disappointed me. Now, if you get an invitation from your boss's boss's boss that says, I want you to join me on Wednesday for a working lunch, what's that say? It says, you're useful to me, but you better bring your A game, right? What if you get an invitation from your boss's boss's boss that says, I want you to come to my home for dinner. This Saturday evening, bring your spouse, bring your kids. We're going to sit out on the back patio. I'm going to barbecue. What does that say? It says, I like you. It says, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. I want you to know me. I want you to come into my house. God is inviting the priests to a meal. He's saying, I'm setting apart these sacred people. I'm, I'm equipping them. I'm giving them everything they need. I'm setting them apart uh, to, to serve me. They're going to be a go-between between me and my people. I really like them. I want to celebrate with them. I want to feast with them. I want to party with them. Okay, that's, that's what's going on in Leviticus 8. But the next question I want to ask is, what, what does this mean for us today? What, who are our priests today? I mean, that's, okay, that's really interesting, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> like 3,000 years ago, there were these priests, and that's what they did. Great. But who are our priests today? <coughs> Many years ago, when I was a grad student, um, Ashley and I were grad students at the same time, and um, because of what her studies, we went to this conference in Greece. And so she was there to give a paper, and I was there on vacation in Greece, and it was awesome. And um, one night we went to this dinner with a bunch of other grads, people at this conference, and I got in this conversation with a Greek woman who... Um, you know, has grown up in Greece where, you know, the religious climate is, I think, 98% of, of the population of Greek, Greece are uh, officially, ostensibly, members of the Greek Orthodox Church. And I, we have been talking about just life and different stuff, and we're at this kind of academic conference where everybody's kind of like hip and liberal, and, and we're having a good conversation, and she, I, she, you know, she thinks I'm like a normal person. And then she asked me, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm studying to be a pastor. And it was like, the f expression on her face was as if a second like head had popped out of the side of my neck. And it was like, she goes, well, I'm an atheist. And I'm like, oh, that, so you're one of the 2% of Greeks who is not a member of the Roman Catholic Church. And she's like, are you gonna be a priest? And, okay, how would you answer that question? Who are our priests today? Um, there's a sense in which what Leviticus 8 and 9 and 22 and 23, for that matter, says about priests that applies to pastors and elders in the church today, in the New Testament church. And I'm not going to say anything about that because I think there's a much more helpful answer uh, to the question of who are our priests today. And the, the answer has two parts. 
And the first thing we have to see is that our priest today is Jesus. Um, we have to remember that the key to understanding the book of Leviticus is that Leviticus is the gospel in shadows. It's not the thing that was meant to, to last and, and, and be central to God's people forever. It was meant to give us a shadow of what was to come. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, the depth and beauty and meaning um, of his role is enhanced because, his, because the, the Jewish people for 2,000 years had related to God by way of a priest. And then Jesus comes, and we begin to see the real deal, not just the shadow, but the thing itself. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, incidentally, is, is some ways to think about the Hebrews, it's like it's a New Testament commentary on the book of Leviticus. And Hebrews doesn't say Leviticus is no longer relevant for Christians. It says, let me explain to you all of these things in light of Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is the one who is fully God and fully man. He is the one with a foot on, in heaven and a foot on earth. I know I did that. Heaven was here last time. It's okay. <laughs> he has one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. He is the man who tells us um, what God is like. He is the one who shows us what God is like. Um, we don't, you know, I talk to people all the time who say things like, well, it seems to me that God is like, and then they tell me their common sense, you know, 2017 American view of what God must be like. The point is that we don't have to guess about what God is like. Because God has come to us. We have a priest in Jesus who shows us, who demonstrates to us what God is like. You don't have to wonder what God is like because Jesus is our go-between. He is not a man saying, I think this is what God might say to you. He is a man who is God, who shows you exactly what God is like. Jesus brings us into God's presence himself. We also see that Jesus, he is completely and utterly dedicated to God. In his life, everything he did fully and completely obeyed the entire law of God perfectly. I don't know if I could put another like um, superlative in that sentence. There is no sense in which Jesus did anything less than utterly, fully, completely fulfill God's requirements. And in his death, he gives himself up completely. He doesn't hold anything back. In his life, in his death, everyone he talked to, everything he did, everything he taught, everything he didn't do, was fully and completely dedicated to God. He is the priest who set apart for God. Now what does that mean for you and for me? What I know is this, I kind of hinted at this already, but every single one of us longs for affirmation. Every single one of us longs for a voice outside of ourselves that says, you're okay, you're doing a good job, you are loved, someone sees you, I care about you. Every single one of us longs for that. Self-esteem is never enough. We all crave a voice outside of ourselves, a voice of someone who matters that says, you are loved. 
I remember when um, my older boys were, were very young, my second son learned very quickly that his goal in life was going to be, as a kid anyway, to keep up with his brother. And so by nine months old, he was running. And, then, and, I, and I remember as a dad, not just walking, he would climb, he would run, he was all over. And I remember as a dad, just has a sense of pride in my, my little boy as he's learning how to walk and run, and he's just so adorable. And I remember just picking him up in my arms and saying, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. And when I said that, his older brother, who's maybe two, heard that. And he said, Daddy, tell me that you're proud of me too. Two years old, and already that deep sense. I want somebody, I want my dad to tell me that he loves me. Already he has that instinct in him that says, if somebody else is getting praise, what does that mean for me? We all long for somebody important to tell us, I love you. That's why every culture has priests. We have Oprah, right? Forget it. (laughs) But the beauty of Jesus as our priest is this. Jesus isn't just a man who tells us what he thinks God thinks about us. But Jesus speaks As the man who is God, he speaks God's word of peace and affirmation and love to you directly. He sees you, he knows you, and he says, I love you. Jesus is our priest. But there's a second answer to that question. Who are our priests today? There's a second answer. And uh, the second answer is this. All Christians, every believer is a priest. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the, one of the fundamental um, kind of rediscoveries in the Word of God 500 years ago, we're celebrating this year, at the time of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was the belief that there are not just certain people that can under, that have access to God, but every Christian has access to God through Jesus. Martin Luther said, all who are Christians are priests, very simply, very profoundly. The priesthood of all believers. First Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy people for his own possession, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did you catch that? That's like a summary of Leviticus 8. But it's applied not to the Jewish people or not to the Levites, but to Christians. Peter is writing in 1 Peter to people who aren't even Jews. Uh, they're Roman, or maybe some of them are, but they're, they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He's not saying, you Jews, some of you are priests. He's saying, you Christians, you are priests to God. You are, you are his own possession, and you are his possession, wholly dedicated to him, so that you can um, proclaim his excellencies to your neighbors. Um, pastors and elders teach God's word and lead the church in worship and mission. But pastors and elders do not represent Christians before God like the Old Testament priests. As your pastor, I pray for you. But I do not represent you to God. Uh, you 
have direct access to the God of the universe through Jesus. You are a priest. Remember what I said at the beginning, God has marked off his people as unique. And his people are unique in order to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live in the presence of God. God has marked off his people as unique. The priesthood is a model of what it looks like to live as sacred people in the world. And in the Old Testament, the priest served as the shadow of what was to come. But now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that he has ascended into heaven where he rules, and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in the lives of believers, to bring the presence of God into the lives of believers, God now sends each Christian out into the world in order to show the world what it looks like to live in light of the presence of God. That is remarkable. If you are a believer, if you trust in Jesus, if you are following Jesus, then you are a priest. Now, I think that means that does kind of two things. I mean, there's a sense in which that kind of levels the playing field. Remember when I said one of the weird factor things about the, the priest is this question of hierarchy. These priests, they think they're better than us? Well, no. I mean, New Testament Christianity, biblical Christianity, I know that there's some Christian traditions would take a slightly different view on this, but I believe what the Bible would teach us is that um, there's a leveling of the playing field. There, there is no... A uh, human being who has greater access to God than another because Jesus brings us into the presence of God. It levels the playing field. But there's another way to say that, which is that this, this raises the bar for all of us. Because this is not, the, the New Testament is not saying there are no priests. Right? It's not saying, I mean, I've probably in one context said the New Testament does not teach priesthood. But that's not, actually not true. <laughs> It's not saying there are no priests. It's saying we're all priests. It's raising the bar for all of us. Um, this means that we are all priests, that you have been called. If you're a Christian, you have been trained, that you have been set aside for a purpose. It means that you, in your baptism, have been washed. You have been washed. Um, you have been clothed in the majesty of Jesus himself. And you are invited to feast with God at his table, which we're going to do in a few moments. This means that we approach our work in the world and the work that we do in the church, maybe as volunteers, as priests. Uh, we do our work with excellence, with intentionality. Um, as we go about our work in the world, the way that we do our work and the actual work that we do is a display to others, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers of what it looks like to bring God's presence into the work that we do in the world. And in the church, a work, no matter how mundane, how behind the scenes, no matter how seemingly insignificant it might be, is done in order to lead God's people into God's presence, into, into worship. And so we do it with excellence. We do it well. In some ways, the question is not who is a priest. It's clear you are a priest. By the way, it doesn't say um, you should be a priest, right? It says you are. If you're a Christian, you are a priest. So the question is more not um, are you a priest? The question is, if I can put it bluntly, is like are you a good priest? Am I a good priest? Am I a lazy priest? Am I a reluctant priest? Am I a complaining priest? How do I approach my work in the world and in the church with priestly significance? Uh, do I listen to God? 
Do I listen to people? Do I usher others into the presence of God? I um, quoted another book by the same author last week, Andy Crouch, in his book Strong and Weak. This is, an, this is a rabbit trail. This is an excellent book. I have a case of them that I, want to, I bought to give away because if you want, this is a fantastic book. Um, he, he, he tells the story of a woman named Isabel. And Isabel was a, um, she's Chilean by birth. She, uh, in Chile, she um, was a qualified, certified, licensed counselor. And then she married an American and she moved to Santa Barbara. And her credentials didn't transfer in the US and her husband was struggling to find work and she was struggling to find work. And she finally took a job having been a professional, having been a counselor, having been a person somebody goes to to help them deal with their struggles. She took a job as a housekeeper, cleaning the houses of the wealthy in Santa Barbara. And this is what she said, these are the words of Isabel. As she talks about how she goes about her work in a priestly way, she says, if you look in the book of Genesis, in the beginning the world is in darkness. There's no order. God is a God of order. He orders every single life, changes every life from darkness to light in Jesus. And that is my motivation as I work. Everything I do is from God. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and we are to do the same, to be a servant with love. If I'm cleaning a toilet, well, that is something that needs to be done to order the world and to wash the feet of others. There is no sadness about that. It's a joy. The greatest example of servanthood in my life is the Holy Spirit, because He guides me. I listen to His voice, and I say, yes, sir. She goes on to talk about what it's like to carry that perspective into the, life, into the homes of the people that she is serving. She says, of course, it's sad to see people who have everything beautiful, everything perfect. They contract with you so their world can continue to be perfect and clean. But you quickly realize that their life is empty. So I have to be a light for them. Every single home I go to, I pray for that family, that they can find God. If he will use me, amen. If not, amen. He will send somebody else. Isn't that beautiful? Um, isn't that wonderful? Every single one of us is a priest to God. Listening to God's word in order to make God known, maybe by the cleaning of houses for his glory. A beautiful, ordinary picture of entering into our world as priests. So what about you? What does it look like for you to carry out your work in the church and in the world as a priest? Well, that brings us to the third question very briefly. What is your next step? What is your next step? What next step can you take in moving into the world to make God's presence known? And I want to say very briefly, this is a process uh, we didn't read this part. I think it's maybe it's at the end of chapter 8 of Leviticus where it says that um, in the ordination process, the initiation process for these priests, they were now going to live in the temple for seven, in the tabernacle court for seven days. Uh, and it says because it will take seven days to ordain you. And it's this idea that, that this is a process. Becoming a priest and living into our priesthood is a process. And God does not look to us and expect absolute perfection. He doesn't say, this is the bar, now clear it. It's a process. 
And so, you know, he invites us into a process of taking next steps in order to live into the reality of who he has said that we are. So having said that, let me be honest for a second here. I rarely, as I've wrestled with this this week, I've realized I rarely think about what my next steps in following Jesus might be. That might sound surprising because I'm a pastor, but one of the things I have come to realize about myself in the last few months is that it is really easy for me to blur the line between my next steps as a follower of Jesus and my next steps as the pastor of this church. Because there, of course, I want to be leading this church in next steps as we are following Jesus together. But, I, I mean, there's part of it that is about me and my agenda, too. And I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that um, there are things that I just can't do anything about. And that I'm trying to learn how to be okay with that. Uh, I'm learning that that's okay. Because when I'm out of control, God is still in control. And even when I find myself kind of bumping up against the wall of things that I can't control, there's still a next step for me. There is a next step for me into faithfulness. There is a step for me into trusting God that he is the one who will build his church. Uh, There is a step for me to take into gentleness. You know, it's funny. Um, I was talking with a friend, another pastor, about this this week. And uh, he said something I thought was really profound. He said, our ability to uh, kind of envision our next step and following Jesus is related to how much we long for God and his kingdom to come in the world and in our lives. Does that make sense? Um, and then my, my friend made this clear because then he sent me a picture of Ikea. <laughs> and uh, it was a picture, he said there's a new Ikea opening in my, in my uh, city. And he had this picture, I don't know if he took it himself or it was on the news, but there's a picture of people lining up around the block to get into Ikea. And he showed me that picture and it just hit me. You know, I have a series of next steps for my house. Some of you know, we just bought a house a couple months ago. I love working on my house. I have the, you know years of projects, uh, of home improvement projects for my house. And the reason is because the kingdom that I long for is so often my own. And part of me, a dark part of me really believes that contentment is like three steps down the line of the home improvement to-do list. But it's, it's not true. Because I'm way more than three steps into that process and it's never brought me contentment yet. It's not awful, but it's not the kingdom of God. I don't know what my next step in following Jesus is oftentimes because when it comes to Jesus, I just, I mean, this is what we all think. Like, we want it to be organic. We think spirituality should be authentic. If we don't feel like it, then, gosh, should we really, like, I don't know. Like, I want to be legalistic about it, right? And then I think about that picture of Ikea. Like, there's nothing easy or authentic about Ikea. Nobody gets excited about Swedish meatballs. You you cannot pronounce the names of the furniture that you're buying. (laughs) Like, putting that furniture together is torture. 
right? Like the instructions are terrible, but we do it. It's, we make the sacrifice because we think that it's going to bring us contentment. We think it is going to build the kingdom of us and that that will make us happy and satisfied. And it won't. What might your next step be in living into the reality of who God says you are? Might he be calling you into something that at the outset feels uncomfortable or you don't know the right words or the, I, I don't know if I, I feel awkward about this. It's okay, it's okay. If God is who he says he is and he's calling us to be the people that Leviticus 8 says we are, it's worth, it's worth endealing a little bit of awkwardness for him. As um, a church, we've been trying to, to be clearer uh, about the steps that we can take to follow God together. And so for some of you, you've, you've heard what I'm about to say over and over, and you're going to roll your eyes, and some of you, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, what we've been saying as a church is that we're here to help people move beyond busy and fine. Not just be overwhelmed, not just be like, oh, everything's fine, whatever. But to move into the abundant life that Jesus offered by connecting with God. And that there are four steps that we can take as we learn to follow God together. And the first step is, is to simply go to church. And I, I know I talked about that last week a little bit. I'm not going to harp on that. But go to church. It's the first step. Make it a priority to be in church. Secondly, we've got to connect with others. We've got to connect with other believers. And that's what the welcome lunch is all about. And I'd encourage you to be at that next week. And then the third step that we might, uh, that some of us might be um, starting to take is to serve, to live for something beyond ourselves and to begin to move out in service towards other people. And then the fourth step is to give. And it, we're not after your money. Jesus isn't after your money. But at some point, you're going to want to invest your treasure where your heart already is. We do that anyway. That's why I have no problem spending money on my house. But giving my money away pains me. It's a reflection of what's in my heart. And maybe if I want my heart to be invested in God and his kingdom, I should put my money there and my heart will follow. What's your next step in following Jesus? What's your next step in following Jesus as you move beyond the walls of your church, our church, the church? Um, what's your next, how do you follow Jesus as a priest in the work that he has for you in the world? Um, Maybe you could begin to pray. Maybe you pray for your co-worker. Like, what would it look like to simply, on the way into the office in the morning, whatever the work, wherever you go to work, that you pray for your co-workers by name? Like Isabel. Uh, what would it mean this summer to make it a goal to get to know your neighbors? To not just be a neighbor where you awkwardly wave hi at people whose names you once learned but have long since forgotten. To like hang out in your front yard and meet your neighbors and invite people to, you know, barbecue together this summer. Um, maybe to begin to think about your money, not just your giving, but all of your money, the way that you spend your money in a priestly way. What is the impact of the things I buy in the world? And how can I spend my money on things that will further bring God's presence into our world? Maybe it's simply to make a commitment to listen to God and reading his word. What's your next step? We move out into the world as priests 
bringing God's presence to others in all that we do. At times it's frightening, at times it's hard, it might be confusing, it might feel awkward, but if we would endure the weirdness that is Ikea, it doesn't matter. Would we not be willing to endure the weirdness of taking steps to follow the God who has washed us, who has called us, who has cleansed us, who has clothed us with the majesty of Jesus, and who sends us out into the world to make his presence known. We work because God works with us. We work because God works through us. So let me finish with this story. Several years ago, when my, uh, I think it was my oldest son, doesn't matter, was, was very you know, young, much younger than he is now, um, I remember sending him up to his room and saying, go clean your room. And I could hear him up there like, just destroying his room. <laughs> And he would come down and say, is your room clean? He's like, oh, I forgot. (laughs) Go clean your room. And he goes back up, and a few minutes later, I just hear the noise, and he comes back down again. Is your room clean? Oh, go clean. I'm getting increasingly frustrated. He's back up there, and I hear the noise and the chaos. And I run up the stairs, and I'm like pounding on the stairs. You know, I want him to know what's coming. I'm so infuriated that he won't just do the simple thing. And I'm pounding my feet, coming down the hallway to his room, and he hears me, and he turns, and he looks at me, and I see in his face this flash of fear. And something in that, in the look in his face just melted my heart. And I got down on my knees in front of him, and I said, I love you. We're going to clean your room now. And then together we cleaned his room. And that's a picture of what it looks like to go out into the world as a priest. You have a father who loves you. And he doesn't send you out to work because he's angry at you. He is with you. And he loves you. And he sends us out into the world to be his presence in the world. He is with you. He loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are our high priest. That you have um, gone behind the veil. That you have ushered us into God's presence in your life and in your death. And so God, as we now move to a time of celebration, of feasting, Would you help us to know that you are the one who calls us, who equips us, and who sends us into the world to make your presence known. But as we do that, before we do that, regularly as we are making your presence known in the world, that you want to feast with us, that you want to celebrate with us. Would you help us, uh, would you use this bread and this wine to strengthen our faith, Would you help us to eat and drink with smiles on our faces, with singing, with gladness, because we have a Father who has spoken to us in Jesus, who has told us that we are okay, because Jesus is our priest. You love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.